Chapter 9 of Flowers and Ferns in Their Haunts by Mabel Osgood Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter 9 A Composite Family. August ushers in the reign of the composites, whose realm, wide as the land, is entered by many ways. Every road that escapes the annual turnpiking and fence clearing so dear to the heart of selectmen becomes a highway through it while sunflower lane is the direct passage to the palace of the golden-crowned monarchs where even before july has left joe pye of robust stature takes his place as chamberlain with boneset for court physician black-eyed susan jolly though not in her first youth for lady-in-waiting dentilion scattering gold coins upon the grass as chief almoner ironweed for armorer and fragrant everlasting as perfumer for the composite tribe it will be noticed are very old-fashioned and conservative in the matter of perfumes seldom venturing beyond the herby odors a little space before the lane merges in open fields is the throne room itself where until frost snuffs the lights and locks the door giant wild sunflower is king and reigns majestically holding his head high above his tallest subject as he watches his progeny crowding every bit of hospitable ground far and wide throughout the meadows even venturing to tiptoe into the brackish overflow that quickens the sea gardens for some strange but doubtless scientific reason of recent date the tribe of the composite in being given an english name is by britain and brown called the thistle family why thistle instead of aster goldenrod the most widely distributed of the tribe or better yet sunflower the tallest and most conspicuous of the group i cannot fathom in england the race is called the asterworts yet after all the direct translation composites under which it figured in gray's familiar botany is the best favoring as it does no one household and aptly describing this class of plants where numerous individual blossoms are colonized and gathered into a head making what to the casual observer appears to be one single flower strong with the power of cooperation the composites have a perpetual representation at the sun's council fire about which the twelve months sit awaiting in turn for the season to give their varied offerings from november until early april the dandelion opening bravely in thawed places and warm corners is the only resident member in late april the woolly leaves and light purple wheels of robin's plantain may be seen carrying the hue of the paler violets into dry ground and well up hillsides where the aster-like flowers keep company with the white fluff of the early everlasting that quite suggests its local name of pussy toes in may chamomile takes the field with its fine-cut leaves a forerunner in shape though not in size of its cousin the oxide daisy and before june has fairly arranged her exquisitely brocaded draperies this same daisy is seizing upon waste fields and road edges cutting across lots through the most carefully tended of hayfields 
living as a squatter impossible to uproot around the edges of pastures and impertinently lounging along the grass borders of the garden even after being violently turned away many times from the flower beds where it sought shelter behind the large branches of herbaceous perennials of itself clear-cut and handsome the flower that children love and may gather by the bushel unshidden of wonderful landscape value when massed this poor oxide daisy has gained ill repute from an inherent factlessness for which it is no more responsible than is the english sparrow for his inordinate appetite fertility and manners unbecoming a gentlemanly bird both flower and bird usurp the places of their betters with a familiarity of demeanor which has bred in us an aggressive contempt both had ought to be drove out ejaculated time o year one day as looking across his best hay meadow resown only two years before he realized that it was more white than green while at the same time a partly disabled bluebird tumbled to the fence in front of him having been worsted by a sparrow as he defended his home in a hollow apple branch the mischief of it is he continued ruefully picking up the bluebird smoothing its feathers and setting it upon a shaded branch while he shied a stick at the invading sparrow both of em works more hours a day than we do and has more time to give to holdin on than we to rootin and drivin em out so naturally we can split our throats approvin that they'd ought to go but they don't all the same in late may and early june the fragrant yellow thistles show their bristling leaves which gives a hornet's sting to those that touch them along the edges of brackish marsh meadows this thistle is an unpickable flower but one that adds great charm to the foreground of the meadow landscape otherwise somewhat monotonous with its straight growing grasses by weaving through it a unique brocaded pattern of leaf and flower that is of infinite relief to the eyes seeking in vain for focus amid the blending colors of the unfenced expanse next to the dandelion and oxeye the thistles are the composites most constantly with us for their picturesque if mischievous flowers represented by the field pasture swamp creeping and scotch varieties may be seen from may until november and the rugged burr thistle like the veritable tramp that he is only disappears when literally snowed under june also brings the white bunches of yarrow with a pungent herbage while as the month passes the white of the oxide daisy grows dingy and black-eyed susan vigorous and bustling in a blaze of indian yellow takes its place giving the keynote of the color scheme that will gradually dominate until in many places the field flag of august and september is a tricolor of gold green purple in july the golden buttons and vigorous fern-cut leaves of tansy draw attention to the roadsides and waste corners that it brightens at the same time giving a wholesome herby odor telling of its medicinal qualities which have in fact gained for the flowers the somewhat dubious name of bitter buttons during this month also the various coneflowers black-eyed susan's taller kinsmen 
draw the eye from the open fields to the low river borders where the notched yellow rays of the green-headed coneflower held well above the deeply cut leaves rival the giant sunflower in height bending above the intervening barriers of joe pie ironweeds and rank-grown river tangle to be clearly mirrored in the water one glowing august morning when a fresh easterly wind having dispersed the heat haze brought an invigorating hint of september nell and i started out to look for time o year it was the first day that i had ever deliberately tried to find him i had oftentimes wondered as to his whereabouts or expected to see him in some accustomed field or following the river path but usually i had come upon him unexpectedly or he had overtaken me in a mysterious manner as if in answer to a telepathic impression at the very moment when he was most needed as a guide or counsellor where to locate him this day was indeed a question his range was wide and his little cabin the most unlikely place to find him between sunrise and sunset so after crossing the hills and leaving the more frequented roads behind i let the reins hang loose so that nell might choose the path herself as any of the three roads that diverged from the hill below the lilac house led to an equally uncertain hunting ground already the goldenrods were bright in field and swamp crowding close to the wheel tracks and climbing to the tops of gravel banks where little else could find footing the landscape from middle august to middle september is so identical as to make one wish that the conventional division of the seasons followed the natural law and that summer might have all the golden days that really belong to her until the autumnal equinox is reached september twenty first almost all the common goldenrods were represented either in the wayside crowd or in the more exclusive groups that peeped out from the woods or carried gleams of sunlight along the swamp edges to cheer the stately somberness of cattail flags the silver rod with its leafy wand of whitish blossoms mingled with the blue-stemmed goldenrod which bears its flowers in little bunches in the leaf axles on the partly shaded banks of the upper hemlock road while the two bush goldenrods the robust and the slender fragrant with flat-topped flower clusters held well above leaves of two degrees of narrowness continued the yellow through arid open places until at the top of the next hill these also merged in a confusing throng composed of the elm-leaved showy anise-scented and cut-leaved species goldenrod collectively is a delight to the eye from its color and an indispensable factor in the landscape for decorative purposes it is eminently satisfactory sought out and beloved by all men as is amply proved by goldenrod weddings and by the numerous jars pitchers water cans and bean pots filled with it that decorate suburban stoops shielding the feet of the sex whose idea of rural pleasure is to sit exercising the patient piazza rocking chairs the composites as a whole are first and last flowers of the people flowers that may be gathered freely 
that are undiscouraged by much handling, reviving cheerfully, and living for weeks after a protracted journey under the seat of a picnic wagon, and dangerously easy to transplant. In short, to be considered, and used decoratively, more as we regard textile fabrics than as flowers. Taken individually, however, and from the standpoint of calling each member of this composite household by name, the goldenrods, outside of half a dozen well-marked species, offer the Chinese puzzle of the floral world. In fact, they are a byword among plant students, who say that if a botanist is ever condemned to the severest punishment that the underworld can meet, the penalty will be to write a monograph accurately describing and identifying all the known goldenrods. As I have often found, in connection with tramps afield, when I least expect the unexpected, it happens. Nell lifted the goldenrod haze that had made me oblivious as to exactly which of the wood roads we were following, by stopping suddenly and giving a sort of interrogative whinny, as much as to ask, do we tie here? To my surprise, I found that we were abreast of an old shed under which she had often spent the middle of warm days while Flower Hat and I roamed about the tree bridge region. The shed was one of time of year's scattered bits of property and only separated by a tangled strip of garden flowers from his cabin, behind which he was now sitting on an elm stump used for a chopping block, his fine head held between his hands, his deep eyes open and gazing straight before him at nothing, unless it was the yellow ribbon of dwarf brook sunflowers that started from below the overflow tub by his well and looped and twisted to join a broader band that outlined a meadow pool. Nell had already turned into her familiar quarters under the shed, and I hastened across the lot below to come within distant range of the old man without surprising him into betraying any trouble that he might not wish to reveal. I paused a moment to look up at a gigantic stalk of Canada goldenrod that held its plumes high above my head, and at once became conscious that he was coming toward me, his wide straw hat pulled well over his eyes one hand twisting nervously in his wonderful beard that glistened like spun silver or the newly released silk of milkweeds. There wa'n't no other way out of it. I allowed when the breeze came up long about sunrise that you'd just have to come today, he said by way of greeting, speaking more rapidly than I had ever heard him. Is that quick-moving, fidgety young lady along that always shifts about and grabs posies up first and is dreadful sorry afterwards he added anxiously no i ain't sick do i look worried well i be and if you can spare time to set down in the shade a bit in patience i'll tell it i'll unfold it to you it's more than thirty years ago since i took counsel o any one and then it was of a woman and so long as i had her light to go by things never went altogether wrong but when she left me, I groped along the best I could, and by keeping her lights in sight and staying alone, or mostly in the wood, path, I allowed I couldn't get far astray, and I was happy, though sometimes I e enamust 
followed jobs doings in the scripters but late days summat's come that's upset everything and the lights has bobbed about uncertain as the jack-o'-lanterns over the swamp yonder so i thought seeing as you read bird's feelings and the nature of posies and talk to your mare like a sister maybe you might understand me for i'm only a bit of a weed a-goin to seed by the wayside as time o year said when she left me he made a backward gesture toward the hillside burying place a quarter of a mile beyond with its uneven slate slabs which i had never before noticed was plainly visible from his home we had gravitated toward the shade behind the cabin where he had been sitting he disappeared for a moment and brought out a low straight back chair a woman's sewing chair i surmised which he placed facing the river and again seated himself on the chopping block two or three minutes passed which seemed like half an hour a kingfisher flew over some jays argued noisily below in the dense arbor of river grapes and the distant commotion among a flock of crows that made their roost from late summer onward in the cedar woods suggested that an owl had impolitely invaded their territory and was provoking discord still time o year sat silent for occupation i counted the various asters that made a fringe along the uneven garden fence there were five kinds but growing in such luxuriance as to appear forty the tallest of the plants a sturdy bush in fact was the common blue wood aster with large heart-shaped leaves and violet blue flowers with it mingled the early purple violet wood and smaller bushes of white heath aster the familiar michaelmas daisy of roadsides while groups of patens the late purple aster so called because of its long blooming season with ovate clasping leaves and deep violet daisy-like rayed flowers made broad splashes of rich color within the garden itself ephraim is dead said time o year suddenly and then paused as if announcing the end of someone so well known as to be a part of history i searched my brain for an interpretation and at the moment when i remembered that it was his own baptismal name and therefore probably that of his son who had disappeared so long ago he took up the thread again he was my boy you probably never heard of him being young if ever born when it happened and anyway only acquainted with posies hereabout not folks he seemed a terrible likely child our only one and bright-minded quick at his book tasks in which his mother how gently the word was uttered having been a schoolman herself took pride his fault was allus seeing things better than they be or making em out so any chance a good way of looking at things no i don't mean being just sort o cheerful about bothers that way's upliftin his mother she was like that but i mean the stretchin of facts till they get so out of shape no one would know em if he caught a pickerel it was allus six when the news got out not that that blackened him cause an increase often happens ter fish when out of water but he'd tell things that had no backin and put folks to inconvenience long about the winter when he was sixteen eggs was terrible scarce hadn't had fresh ones at the store in two weeks 
and the meat peddler that usually picked em up over twenty miles of country even got out of limed ones come about christmas time folks got nervous expectin company and no eggs for makin cakes and squash pies if he was down to the store for oil and heard the talk pshaw said he and the minister stood right by him when he said it we folks has got plenty of eggs and ma's a lamin of em down she's got a trick of mixin sausage meat into their meal to make em lay and keepin their nest house hot with the old wood stove of course this sounded likely enough to shut out any suspicions that night it snowed heavy and next morning we saw two sleighs with a plow in front breaking the way up hill what's mischanced quoth she there's the doctor's cutter and the judge and the minister a riding together behind it i dunno i allowed being more startled than i showed mistrusting something inwardly judging from those that's comin it might be for a weddin a bornin or a buryin only there's no folks ripe for either up this cross road f came out from behind the stove where he was reading a tale of engines that they give away that fall with cans of gunpowder down to the center he took a scared look out of the window and slipped over toward the barn just as the folks halted and began to get out baskets we come for eggs shouted the doctor hern so's to be first name your own price in cash this tells you how eggs was prized then for in those times things was mostly traded and i remember one year the only cash went through my hands was a three-cent bit and two paper quarters naturally it all come out that effort said we had eggs and that was terrible put about breaking three miles of road for nothing the minister he preached on lion the next sunday and he called for the prayers of the congregation for ephraim in which the doctor being a deacon led and left nothing unsaid the result was such hectoring all round that in the spring as soon as the rose was good the boy ran off with a feller that travelled around selling maps and such who had been hanging about the centre interviewing the school committee practical joke folks didn't understand him had too much imagination you're kindly disposed i see just like his mother was she allers allowed his meanings was misread. Maybe in a big town it would have been overlooked, and he'd been guided into a story-writer, as you say. But here around Lone Town, he was just plain liar. The minister proved it by scripture, and that ended it, and folks was shut of F, for ministers was dreadful unrelenting those times, and felt it their duty to keep God stirred to wrath constant. This minister, in particular, was one of them that didn't even approve of parts of the New Testament, thinking, Suffer little children led to breach of discipline, and our father too comforting and free a way of speech to be advisable. We never heard of Ephraim for nigh two years, and before we did, his mother died. The doctor called it lung fever, but it was just shame and sorrow, together with opening the window a crack at night when the wind made queer noises to hear if hebe was coming if ever he comes home she said don't raise the past and if he don't come back back him up all you're able whenever you can 
Then I rented out the farm for ready money and moved down here so as to save a little to help him if the right time came. I knew he'd never come back through, and I was content he shouldn't, for I felt her grave between us. Then, like Job in his sorrow, I went out to dwell in the cliffs of the valleys, in the caves of the earth and in rocks, to become a brother to dragons and a companion to owls, not that there were even exactly dragons hereabouts, nothing worse than catamounts. But I dreaded folks and found the ice storms kinder than their judgments, and God more often encouraging and to be met with in walking in the wood path in the cool of the day than restrained and having meanings that he never meant to put into his mouth up in the meeting house. After maybe ten years of hearing from F now and then, the letters being from first one state and then another, he wrote he'd settled in California and was growing grapes for wine-making. Then for a year he wrote often and pestered me to come out to him. But I wasn't constituted to transplant and leave my haunts here and her up yonder. So I sent him a bit of money, promised more, and told him, so as to make him feel I was trustful, and not to hurt his pride, if he didn't need it to keep it for me. He wrote back and said he was well-to-do, and would turn any money I sent to account to make me rich. It sounded just so like him, but I didn't let myself doubt his word, and next I knew, one Christmas, he sent me a good gun, my fishing rod, another, and then a box of wine that six schoolmarm that loved posies that I told you of got most of, and so on. Then I didn't hear so often, though I sent him a trifle once a year. A couple of years ago he wrote he was married, been married quite a spell, but never said when or to who, and now it's forty years next spring since he went away and Ephraim's dead. Time of year paused, went over to the well, drew up a bucket, filled the tin dipper, offered it to me, then took a long drop, replaced the faded flower in the buttonhole of his shirt with a fresh pink, and returned to the chopping block again. His being dead ain't all. He did do well in grape farming and mining ventures here and there, and his partner sent me on a letter to make sure I was alive, and then I answered it saying I was, and asking particulars. Back come a check for all I'd scraped together and sent F, swelled out as big and unknowable as a thin face that's stung by bees. He had laid it out to profit for me, me who was half doubting all the while, and he'd fixed things so I'd get it anyhow. I could see the veins in the old man's forehead knot and his speech struggle in his throat as, to conceal it, he drained the dipper again. Then, coming back, he fumbled in a leather wallet worn inside his shirt and drew out a strip of paper bearing the five figures that would not only place Tommy Year beyond need, but make him a personage among the neighboring farming folk. As I was about to tell my pleasure, he raised his hand. Shh, that's not all. I ain't reached the real trouble yet. He was married, it turned out, more'n twenty years ago, and he's left a grown-up daughter, and last night the carrier brought this letter, and was terrible curious about it. And from his pocket, Tommy Year drew a square envelope of lilac paper, heavily scented, 
and addressed in a bold, nervous hand, his name prefixed with squire, and Hillcrest Farm added to the usual address. It read, Dear Grandfather, Now that Dad is dead, I have no people but you. Dad married Ma right out of the convent, where she, having no people, was left a baby. When I was born, she died, and I lived at the vineyard with Dad until it was time to send me off to school to be rubbed up a bit like the other girls, and then I went for four years to San Francisco and only got back a year ago. Last winter, when Father got ill, and we went over to the beach and stayed in a hotel, then I found it was just the right thing to come from Eastern people. There were girls that scored high from having come from fighters in that old shindy between England and the States. Daughters of the Revolution, they called themselves, and wore pens according to the states they claimed, as proud as peacocks. Dad said your grandfather was a general in that war, and that he would get me the papers proving it, but he died before he did it. Now, grandfather, I'm going to marry Daddy's young partner, who was raised east, though his grandfather didn't fight, and I don't want anything you can buy me for a wedding present, because I've enough money but i do want you to fix me up those papers and send me a few bits of the family silver and a picture of you the oil painting dad says hung in the dining room and perhaps the family bible with the old silver clasps if you can spare it something to show you know for family relics when we have the eastern crowd out to see the vineyards and do write me about yourself how many hands you do keep and do you reap with steam or horsepower some day I'm going to surprise you with a visit and coax you back here with me. Next spring, maybe. How do you like my last picture? It looks sad in a black dress, but I'm really never sad, and I love pretty fluffy clothes. Adieu. Don't forget the papers and the silver. Your effect, Alois. Daddy said Lois was his mother's name, and Adele was my mother's so he placed them together for mine, Alois, my patron saint. The photograph was of a girl of perhaps eighteen with a strong oval face, black hair and eyes speaking of Spanish blood, and nostrils that curved like those of a spirited horse. I gained time by looking at it a moment, and then faced Tommy Year, who was gazing at me with a pitifully sad, hunted expression in his gray eyes. I don't mind that she's a Romanist, the woods has driven such distinguishing feeling out of me, but why need he have made out things to her so different, so much better than they be, that they'll give him the lie after he's gone, even if I say nothing, he whispered, half to me and half to the river. We never had family silver except six teaspoons and the little tea caddy that came from Lois's grandaunt. The Bible never had clasps, and it was hers, and I can't give it. There's no oil portrait. My grandfather never was a general, just a plain soldier. He did fight with Putnam, though, and fit good, too, and so did her great-grandfather. Send her the record of two fighting ancestors to make up for the lack of one general, I said, the pathos of it all dimming my eyes. Have the papers made out, and I will have them copied on a piece of parchment with a border of wood flowers. Then you can make a frame for them yourself from birch bark. Send her the tea caddy and that odd mahogany chair that stands inside the cabin door, but say you do not wish to give away the Bible. As for the portrait, 
I will take a picture of you with your rod and fishing basket, which will neither lie nor shame you, and it will please her. As for the rest, we must think it out, but this is enough to start with, and there is no need of making a mystery of the fact that you have a granddaughter who wishes to join the society of the Daughters of the Revolution, for that is a matter as well understood among these hills as elsewhere. Have the papers ready the next time I come, and that fidgety young lady with the flowery hat will gladly print and decorate them for you, I am sure. There's nobody like women folks for either sentin' out trouble or curin' it, said Time o' Year, a more peaceful expression, replacing his pained one which his face had worn. And, as you say, backed by scripture, as it were, mending part of the evil is sufficient for one day, and a part of the lie can be eased up without sharing it. Yes, and another part, too, and honestly. For do you remember that you were living in the farmhouse and not the cabin when Ephraim went away? He knew nothing about that. So, in his loneliness, he must have looked back at his home and mother until its comforts and grandeur seemed far greater than they were, the fields broader and the hill crest it stood on far higher. Perhaps, dear old friend, when we have the wedding gifts ready to go, you may see your way to living at the farm again. Yes, and back up as well as I can, though it's only his memory, as she asked, help him by having that last mistake that maybe came through homesickness, said Tommy Year, catching his breath as he moved slowly toward the river path, desiring to be alone. I sat still a moment, looking across the meadows glowing with bright flowers, before I went to release Nell. We lingered on the river road a while before going over the hills, for the breeze was taking a noon nap. The New England aster, in its first freshness, bloomed in its favorite haunt, the moist edge between road bank and river. What a striking plant this is when seen standing in uncrowded groups close to the water, its rough green leaves veiling the stout stem which, at the height of four or five feet, is crowned with clusters of rich purple flowers, giving a perfect foreground to the river picture that disappeared in the shadows of a green cave, whose walls were low-arching trees. Surely this is the most admirable of all the asters. Along the road that traverses the hemlocks, the various shade-loving asters kept us company, the familiar white wood with rather heart-shaped toothed leaves and white ray flowers, and the tall white flat-topped with sparse ray flowers gathered in flat heads like yarrow. On the dry and rocky ground in the hemlock woods themselves, a few composites of several tribes had found footing, and a great bunch of the dark-stemmed, stout, ragged goldenrod filled a gap between the hemlock trunks through which the distant waters of the sound were visible, making withal a charming picture. By the time we were over the hills, the sun was veiled in gray haze, and the breeze abroad again, bringing a message that a long line of surf was murmuring to the beach. The promise of a cold August storm before the next high tide should reach its utmost sandmark. Not alone in Sunflower Lane and by the wayside do the composites throng, the beach crest, well within reach of the high storm tides, has its colony also, where lives the succulent seaside goldenrod, 
which may be easily identified by its star-shaped flower heads and thick leaves. There the wheel tracks in the road to the beach cottages are outlined by the evergreen-looking bushes of white-wreathed aster with bristling leaves and crowded flowers, while on the beach edge itself and on drifted sand islands all through the sea gardens the dark wands of blazing star set with bright purple thistle-like flowers lure one into the region where the fragrant everlasting mingles with the purplish-white flowers of the dwarf pine starwort that lodges in the grass the leaves suggestive of prickly evergreens like those of the white wreathed aster oh those gardens of the sea with their lavish yield of beauty spread forth freely for the seeing and the gathering the glowing flower colors sweep broadly even as the waves on the beach beyond the sand crest over the rich black earth that is in one spot brackish and marshy and in another dry and crumbling the dividing line being perhaps merely a ridge of wind-drifted sand the sea gardens are the marketplaces of the flower kingdom in even a greater degree than the waysides for owing to this blending of moist and dry land plants of diverse natures find footing and stand well nigh side by side beech plum and service berry thistle and water plantain wood lily and sundrops while rose mallows wild rice salt marsh fleabane and samphire wade into the water on the muddy side of a tide channel and on the higher sandy edge perch fragrant everlasting knotweed beech heather rabbit's foot clover and a wealth of asters all growing in patches and long trails as if these gardens were the magician's nurseries for the testing and proving his wildflower crop as the tide rose the sky grew more leaden and the surf called louder the air became chilly and that night a fire on the hearth greeted the master twenty degrees having slid down the mercury in the thermometer since noontime surely the new england climate mingling autumn with summer like all other things of the magician's realm man beast bird and flower is a composite End of chapter nine